Chapter Thirty of Delorme by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty. The strange interview which I have described, of course, yielded my thoughts sufficient employment. Was it? Could it really be? I asked myself that I had spent the last hour in conversation with the greatest statesman in modern Europe, and in conversation about what? About Ovid the task of a schoolboy in an inferior class, when I could have afforded him minute information upon events on which the fate of nations depended. Could he have received prior information? Impossible! Our vessel had sailed with the fairest wind, and the speed of our passage had been made a marvel of by the sailors. I had lost no time upon the road, and it was impossible, surely quite impossible, that he could have received tidings from Catalonia in a shorter space without indeed the devil as the vulgar did not scruple to say sent him tidings from all parts of the world by especial couriers of his own one thing however is certain i went to the palais cardinal a very important person in my own opinion and i came away from it with my self-consequence very terribly diminished my next reflections turned to the minister's very unclerical dress and i puzzled myself for some time in fancying the various errands which might have required such a disguise for disguise it evidently was of course i could conclude upon nothing and was only obliged to end in supposing with the boy who had guided me thither that no one knew how or why he did anything my way home was easily found and retiring to bed i dreamed all night between sleeping and waking of courts and prime ministers and woke the next morning not at all refreshed for having passed the night in such company i had more disagreeable society however before long for when i had been up about an hour and was preparing to go out and view the great and stirring beehive whose hum reached me even in my own cell the worthy host of the auberge bustled into the room with an appearance of great terror begging a thousand pardons for his intrusion but he hoped he said that if i had anything in my bags which i wished to conceal i would put it away quickly for that the officers of justice were in the house and he had heard them inquire for a person very much resembling me of course i laughed at the idea but the landlord had hardly concluded his tale when in rushed two sergeants and a greffier dressed in their black robes of office one stationed himself at the door one threw himself between me and the window and then commanded me in the king's name to surrender myself i replied that i was very willing to surrender but that there must be assuredly some mistake for that i had not been in paris sufficient time to commit any great crime no mistake sir no mistake replied one of the sergeants people who have the knack commit crimes as fast as they eat oysters you are accused sir of filching they say sir you are guilty of appropriation a good man an excellent good man jonas echemilia of the persecuted race of abraham avers against you sir that last night towards ten of the clock you entered his dwelling sir wherein he gives shelter to old servants cast off by ungrateful masters in other words sir his frippery and notoriously and abominably seduced a white silk suit laced with gold to elope with you to the identity of which suit he will willingly swear so open your swallow all or trunk mail and let us see what it contains 
whilst the worthy sergeant thus proceeded the warning of my good friend the grocer came across my mind and i thought that there was an affectation about the voice of the respectable officer which made me suspect that the whole business might be contrived to extort money though how they could know that i had a white silk dress laced with gold in the valise before me i could not divine however i affected to be very much alarmed and while i examined well the countenances of my honest guests i feigned a wish to bribe them into a connivance not for a hundred pistoles cried the principal sergeant nay nay said the landlord who had remained in the room worthy sergeant you must not be too severe upon my young lodger consider his youth and inexperience echimilia is a tender-hearted man and would not wish you to be hard upon him take a hundred pistoles and let him off the sergeant began to show symptoms of a relenting disposition and expressed his pity of my youth and ignorance of the ways of paris with so much tender-heartedness that it overcame my gravity and sitting down upon a chair i laughed till i cried the two sergeants looked rather confounded but the greffier a little man whose risible organs were apparently somewhat irritable could not resist the infectious nature of my laugh but began a low sort of cachination which he unsuccessfully tried either to drown in a cough or stifle in the sleeve of his robe the sympathy next affected the landlord who after looking wistfully first to one and then to another with one eyebrow raised and one corner of his mouth in a grin while the other struggled for gravity for near a minute was at length overpowered by the greffier's efforts to smother his laughter and burst forth shaking his fat sides till the room rang the sergeant at the door tittered but the principal officer affected a fury that soon brought me to myself though in a very different manner from that which he expected starting upon my feet i caught him by the collar and knocking his bonnet off his head exposed to view the very identical person of my hectoring guide of the night before though he had ingeniously contrived to change completely the shape of his face by cutting his immense beard into a small peak shaving each of his cheeks and leaving nothing but a light moustache upon his upper lip scoundrel cried i giving him a shake that almost tore his borrowed plumes to pieces what in the name of the devil tempted you to think you could impose on me with a stale trick like this because you dined at a table d'hote in flemish lace replied the other sergeant continuing to chuckle at his companion's misfortune but come young sir you must let him go though you have found him out and thereupon he threw back his robe and grasped the sword which it concealed as i had imagined my man of war was as arrant a coward as ever swore a big oath and he trembled violently under my hands till he saw his more valiant comrade begin to espouse his cause so manfully he then however thought it was his cue to bully and exclaimed in his natural voice unhand me or by the heart of my father i'll dash you to atoms the devil you will said i seizing the foot he had raised in an attitude calculated to menace me with a severe kick the window was near and open underneath it was a savoury dunghill from the stables at the side the height about twelve feet from the ground so without farther ceremony i pitched the valiant soldado out head foremost and drew my sword upon his companion who ventured one or two passes in the course of which he got a scratch in his arm 
and then ran downstairs as fast as he could after the landlord and the griffier, who had already led the way. Running to the window, however, from which I could see over the gate of the court into the street, I shouted aloud to the passengers to stop the sham sergeants. The first, who, with my assistance, had gone out the shortest way, whether he was used to being thrown out of window and did not mind it, or whether the dunghill was as soft as a bed of down, I know not, but by this time had gained his feet and was halfway down the street. Where the griffier had slunk to, I cannot say, but the more pugnacious personage who had drawn his sword upon me was caught by the people attracted by my cries, as he was in the act of making best use of his legs after his arms had failed him. It would have given me pleasure, I own, to bring even one of such set of impostors to justice, but I was disappointed, for just as a porter and a vinegar seller were bringing him back to the inn, he suddenly shook them off, slipped the sergeant's gown over his head, and scampered away through a dozen turnings and windings, with a rapidity and address which smacked singularly of much practice in running off in a hurry. After a hot chase, the porter returned to tell me that he could not catch the nimble-limbed cheat, and calling him up to my chamber, I bade him take up my packages and prepared to leave the house, after examining the contents of each valise, from which I found nothing missing, though sufficiently disarranged, to show that they had afforded amusement to others during my absence the night before. Had they met with the diamonds, it is probable that they would have spared themselves and me the trouble of the somewhat operose contrivance to which they had recourse. But these fortunately placed in the very bottom of the valise, with several things of less consequence, had escaped their search. As we were passing into the court, the respectable landlord presented himself, cap in hand, delivered his account, and hoped I had been satisfied with my entertainment, and would recommend his house to my friends. While all the time he spoke, there was a meaning sort of grin upon his countenance, as if he could hardly help laughing at his own impudence. I answered him somewhat in his own strain, that the entertainment was what the reputation of his house might lead one to expect, and in regard to recommending it to my friends, that it was very possible I should have occasion to visit shortly the criminal lieutenant, when I would take care to commend it to his notice in the most particular manner, and point out its deserts to him with care. "'If faith,' answered the host calmly, "'I am afraid that the worshipful gentleman of whom you speak will find but poor accommodation at my house, and therefore feeling myself incompetent to entertain him as he deserves, I would fain decline the honour of his company.' After having paid my reckoning, I betook myself to the shop of the honest grocer, who heard my story without surprise and in answer to my inquiry for a lodging, he replied that he knew of one nearly opposite to his own house, but that he doubted whether it would suit a person of my condition, for it was small and kept by an old widow, who, though very respectable, was anything but rich. I need not say this was the very sort of situation I desired, for after having paid mine host of the Rue de Prévert, my purse offered nothing but a long and lamentable vacuity, with three louis d'or at the bottom, looking as lank and empty when I drew it out of my pocket, as an eel-skin just stripped off one of those luckless aquatic St. Bartholomews. I was soon, then, installed in my new apartment, 
and being left to myself gazed upon my scanty stock of riches as many an unfortunate wretch has doubtless often gazed before me calculating how long each several piece would keep life and soul together and when they were expended what then i asked myself must i then write to my parents confess my attachment to helen own that i murdered her brother take from her mind any blessed doubt that might still remain upon it snap each lingering affection that might still bind her to me in twain at once and at the same time encounter the angry expostulation of my father for loving below my degree as well as the calm reproaches of my mother for having blinded her to that love expostulations and reproaches which for helen's sake i could have encountered while there remained a chance of her being mine but which now i felt no strength to bear no motive to call upon my head oh no no i could not write poverty beggary wretchedness anything sooner than that and starting up i proceeded into the street hoping to drive away thought amongst all the gay sights i had heard of in paris as i passed along the rue saint jacques a beggar asked me for charity and instinctively i put my hand in my pocket when suddenly the thought of my own beggary came upon my mind and with a sickness of heart impossible to describe i drew my hand back saying i had nothing for him do my good lord do cried the mendicant may you never suffer such poverty as mine and if you should for who can tell in this uncertain life and if you should may you never be refused by those you beg of i could refuse no longer it came so painfully home to my own bosom that i gave him a small piece which i had received in change and then walked on feeling as if i had just cast away a fortune instead of giving a piece of a few sols to a beggar oh circumstance circumstance thou art like a juggler at a fair making us see the same object with a thousand different hues as thou offerest thy many-coloured glasses to our eyes passing on i found my way to the palais cardinal where after having gazed for a moment or two at the enormous pile of building before me the thousand-minute beauties of which the darkness had hidden from me the night before i mounted the steps to leave my address as i had been commanded the doors of the palace far from being guarded as i had previously found them now seemed open to every one crowds of people of all classes were going in and coming out and every sort of dress was there from the princely justo corps whose arabesqued embroidery left scarcely an inch of the original stuff visible to the threadbare pourpoint whose long experience in the ways of the world had rendered it as polished and as smooth as the tongue of an old courtier all was whisper and smiles and hurry and bustle and though every here and there an anxious face might be seen giving shade to the picture no one would have imagined that through these gates issued forth each day a thousand orders of death of misery and of despair i entered with the rest and as the way seemed open to every one was walking on when i soon found that all who passed were known for hardly had i taken two steps across the vestibule when an attendant placed himself in my way asking my business it was easily explained and leading me into a small cabinet adjoining the hall he took down a ponderous folio and desired me to write my address when i opened it i found it quite full and the page took down another wherein 
at the end of many thousands of names i wrote my own with ink that i doubted would not prove true lesser and turned away even more hopeless than i came spare time now became my curse and joining with a restless and excited spirit drove me through everything that was to be seen in paris with an eagerness which soon exhausted its object day passed by after day and the minister took no notice of me i spun out my meagre funds like the thread of a spider but still every hour i saw them diminish twice each day i sent to the auberge where i had lodged to inquire whether little achilles had yet arrived and still my disappointment was renewed nor was this disappointment one which the least painful of my feelings for in the solitariness of my being in that great city i would have given worlds for his company even although i could neither respect nor esteem him and yet let me not do him injustice mean qualities were so mingled in him with great ones his folly was so strangely mixed with shrewdness and his love of himself so singularly contrasted with the generous attachment which he had conceived towards me that i hardly knew whether to look upon him with regard or contempt yet certainly i longed for his coming and as the days went by and he came not even while i smiled at remembering his poltroonery i could not help hoping that the little coward had met with no obstruction in the road in the meanwhile my frugality served to prolong the sojourn of my three louis in my purse far longer than i could have expected and perhaps my pain with it as seeing them daily decrease it was like the handfuls of couscousco that they give in morocco to persons dying of impalement the means only of extending moments of misery one day however in passing along the rue st jacques i saw lying on a bookstall two treatises upon very different subjects one relating to military tactics and the other entitled the sure way of winning or hazard not chance the price of each was but a trifle and in a fit of extravagance i bought them both i had now wherewithal to employ my time and i studied each of these two books with an ardour which had it been employed continuously on any great or important subject might have changed the face of my fortune for ever the treatise on strategy though perhaps not the best that was ever written was at all events no detrimental employment and on it i bestowed one half of my time the other half was given to the sure way of winning which was neither more nor less than an elaborate treatise upon gaming with all the profound calculations of chances necessary to qualify a complete gambler thank god i was not by nature a lover of play or by such a study i should have been irretrievably lost as it was i soon began to look upon the gaming-table as the only resource which fortune held out to me and with indescribable assiduity and application i went through every calculation in the book working them out in my mind hundreds and hundreds of times till their results became no longer matters of arithmetic but of memory three weeks elapsed before i deemed myself qualified to encounter the well-experienced parisians and by this time i had but one louis remaining this i changed into crowns and with an anxious heart proceeded as soon as it was dark to a house where i was informed that the minor sort of gambling in which alone i could indulge was carried on every night 
a narrow dirty passage conducted to a small staircase at the bottom of which i began to hear the voices of the throng above at the top were two men wrangling in no very measured terms and passing on i entered a large room where about twenty tables were set out and most of them occupied a crown was demanded for admission which i paid and then proceeded to examine the various groups that were scattered throughout the room squalid misery devouring passion and debasing vice were written in every countenance i beheld of course the whole assembly were divided between losers and winners of the first some were talking high and angrily some were blaspheming with the insanity of disappointment some were gazing with the silent stupefaction of despair and some were laughing with that ringing soulless mockery of mirth with which vanity sometimes strived to hide the bitterest pangs of the human heart of the winners some were amassing their gains with greedy satisfaction some were smiling with a sneering triumph at the poor folks they plundered and some with the eager falcon eye of avarice were gazing keenly at the rolling dice or turning cards as if they feared that chance might yet snatch their prey out of their talons the whole scene came upon my heart with a sickening faintness that had nearly made me turn and fly it all but at that moment a very polite personage seeing a stranger approached and invited me in courteous terms to sit at one of the vacant tables and try a throw of the dice or if i loved better than more scientific games we would open a pack of cards he said i agreed to the latter proposal and we sat down to piquet he played a bold and more hazardous game i the quiet and more certain one and though some fortunate runs of the card made him eventually the winner my loss was but two crowns one throw with these for what you have lost said my adversary before we rose offering me the dice at the same time we threw and i lost two crowns more we threw again and i was penniless i bore it more calmly than i had expected but i believe it was more the calmness of despair than anything else which supported me however wishing my adversary good-night as politely as i could i walked away hearing him say in a whisper to one who stood near he plays very well at piquet that young gentleman it was as much as i could do to beat him beyond a doubt this was meant for my hearing and if so it had its effect for my first thought was what article of my scanty stock i could part with to yield the means of recovering that night's loss the diamonds which achilles had entrusted to me instantly suggested themselves to my mind and the tempter who still lies hid in the bottom of man's heart till passion calls him forth did not fail to suggest a thousand excellent and plausible motives for using them achilles said the devil had himself voluntarily given them to me and even if he had not done so i had just as much a right to them as he had but if my conscience forbade me to take them ultimately it would be very easy to repay the value either when i should have recovered my losses at the gaming-table or when i was restored to the bosom of my family thank heaven however i had honour enough left not to violate a trust reposed in me i had still a diamond ring of my own my mother had given it to me it is true but necessity more strong than feeling required me to part with it and i determined to do so the next morning in looking for it for i had ceased to wear it since i set out from marseilles i met with the packet of papers regarding the count de bagnole which i had almost always kept about me 
and looking over them, I was tempted again to read some of the letters. I went on from one to another, through the whole correspondence between the Count, then a very young man, and the rebellious Rochillois, and I found throughout that fine discrimination between right and wrong which is the chivalry of the mind. It was a lesson and a reproach, but as I had passed to the brink of vice, not by the short and flowery path of pleasure, but by a road where every step was upon thorns, as I had been driven by errors and by accidents rather than led by indulgence, the road back seemed not so long as to those who have followed every maze of enjoyment in their course from virtue to vice. With me it wanted but one effort of the mind, but the moral courage to communicate my true situation to those I loved, and I should at once free myself of the enthrallment of circumstances. Such reflections passed rapidly through my mind, and I resolved to do what I should have done. But what are resolutions? Air. The next morning I carried my diamond ring to a most respectable jeweller, who bought it of me for one-fifth of its worth, and vowed all the while that he should lose by his bargain. Six louis, however, now swelled my purse, and as night came my good resolutions faded like the waning sunshine. The cursed book of games found its way into my hands, and at seven o'clock I stood before the same house where I had left my money the night before. Like the gates of Dis, the door stood ever open, and those feet which had once trod that magic path could hardly cross it without again turning in the same direction. On entering the room, the society which it contained struck me as even more ruffianly than the night before, and I fancied that many eyes turned upon me, as on one whose appearance there on the former evening had been remarked. My polite adversary was looking on at one of the tables where the parties were playing for Louis, but the moment his eye fell upon me, he came forward and offered me my revenge. "'They are playing too high at that table,' said he, as we sat down. "'To my mind, it takes away all the pleasure of the game to have such a stake upon it as would pain one to lose.' "'No gentleman ever plays for the sake of winning a great deal of other people's money, and therefore he ought to take care that he does not part with too much of his own. I play for amusement alone.' and therefore let us begin with crowns, as we did last night. His moderation pleased me, and opening the cards we again commenced our evening with piquet. He again played boldly, and I even more cautiously than before, but the cards were no longer favourable to my adversary. He lost everything, and in an hour I had fifty crowns lying beside me. Half a dozen persons had now crowded round us, and all joined in praises of my skilful play. "'Too skilful for me, I am afraid,' said my adversary, maintaining his good temper admirably, though I thought I discovered a little vexation in his tone. "'I own, fair sir, that you are my master with the cards, but you will not refuse me an opportunity of mending my luck with these?' And he took up the dice-boxes. The spirit had now seized me. I had gained enough to wish to gain more. Bright hopes of turning fortune's frowns to smiles— of freeing myself of all difficulties, of rising superior to my oppressive fate, began to swim before my eyes, and I willingly agreed to his proposal, never doubting that my ascendancy would still continue. We played on rapidly, and soon the pile of coin by my side diminished, vanished, grew higher and higher on his, and with agony of mind beyond all that I had ever felt, 
my golden hopes passed away and despair began to come fast upon me as louis after louis of my last and only resource melted from my touch with the cards all had been fair that was evident enough but now my suspicions began to be awakened in regard to the dice i remembered those which i had split open at Luz, and as i threw i watched narrowly to see whether there was anything in those i played with which might show them to be loaded but no they rolled over and over turning each side alternately as fairly as possible i next fixed my eyes on my adversary when suddenly i saw him with the dexterity of a juggler hold the dice he took up in the palm of his hand and slip two others from the frill round his hand when about to throw again i saw him prepare to perform the same trick and springing up i pinned his hand to the table a loud outcry instantly took place the man's mad what is he about turn him out throw him out of the window cried a dozen voices you shall do it if you like gentlemen cried i provided this man has not two false dice under his hand as i spoke i lifted his hand from the table when to my horror and surprise there were no dice there i was dumb as if thunderstruck and my adversary with every feature convulsed with rage lifted the hand i had liberated and struck me a violent blow in the face instinctively i laid my hand upon my sword when every one round threw themselves upon me and in the midst of a thousand blows i was hurried to the window and though struggling violently to save myself pitched over into the street End of chapter thirty